the healthcare system that we have today is really a result of Lyndon Johnson, which is, we all know, was sort of a transitional presidency, enhancing the Social Security Act with Medicare and adding on to the New Deal and setting up a business model that was cost plus, meaning whatever the service costs, the government's going to pay that cost plus 20%. It's back in 1966, I think, 1966, 1967. Literally, that's still the system we have today. Now, is it cost plus? No, they've started to like set prices for things and, you know, they've had to fix it over time, but it doesn't matter. It was all set around the service. Services are needed for sick people. You don't need services as much for healthy people. So prevention is not optimal for the healthcare enterprise that is trying to generate revenue for services. And that's the fundamental problem. Hello, it's Curdy D, and welcome back. If this is your first time listening, then I'm so glad you found us. In case you missed last week's episode, I had a great conversation with my friend, Melissa Rowley, a switched on journalist and producer that's worked with the BBC, CNN, to name a few. We get into an honest discussion about how the stories we tell ourselves make or break us. This week, I'm excited to share my conversation with Nashville's Marcus Whitney. Marcus is a partner of Jumpstart Health Investors, the most active venture capital firm in America that's focused on innovative healthcare companies with a portfolio of over 130 companies. He also recently launched Jumpstart Nova, the first black healthcare venture fund in America. Marcus is the author of the best-selling book, Create and Orchestrate, about claiming your creative power through entrepreneurship. In this episode, Marcus drops knowledge on why America's healthcare system is so dysfunctional, backstory on why Nashville is the home for the healthcare sector, and he gets real about personal challenges that he's overcome. Please make sure to stay till the end of the episode where I'll share a list of any resources mentioned on today's episode. If you haven't already, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash Curdy D. I'll be reading those out in future episodes. On to today's show. Here's Marcus. Cool. Marcus, first off, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I've been looking forward to this conversation. We have a lot of ground to cover from what's happening in Nashville, where you are now, to learning about how you figured out how to win in life and work, plus your own very unique personal story. And I'm trying to remember when we first met. It feels like it was South by Southwest, circa 2011. I think you were running Moon Toast, and we picked you up from the airport with Jacob Tell at Oniracom, if my memory serves me right, but I could be wrong. I think you nailed it. <laughs> I, I think you nailed it. Yes, it was definitely South by Southwest. Uh, Jacob, you, Mike, that was a fun time. Oh, yeah, that's good, good memories. Yeah, it's sort of almost like a collegiate time, where it, it sort of Web 2.0 was sort of like cresting, and there was some folks that were kind of riding the wave there. I was sort of the Web 2.0 crowd. You might have been around Web 1.0, but we can get into that. In the, I think that's a great segue. Like, Give your audience a little background on what you do professionally, how you get into it. And I guess the other question is, like, when did you know you wanted to be an early stage investor? Wow, great, great series of questions. So right now I'm, I'm a VC, venture capitalist, and uh, my company, Jumpstart Health Investors, we focus specifically on healthcare, health, and wellness, because 
really important space. I think, you know, everyone knows health is important, but probably now, you know, now that we're uh, smack in the middle of a pandemic, everyone really knows how important it is. And um, I love what I do getting to invest in incredible founders who have a vision and a dream on how they can make people's lives better. That's really cool. And I think, you know, many, many VCs will say that, but they're doing it through, I don't know, you know marketing or I don't know, whatever fashion. But health is obviously a very, very core thing for, for all of us. And so I love that. It just feels like there's a lot of meaning in my work. If I rewind back 20 years ago, I was a software developer and working at a company called HealthStream. So uh, I didn't spend much time coding in the healthcare space, just one year, but it is, uh, it, it is an interesting fun fact that my very first software development job was also in healthcare. And that kind of connects the dots to Nashville because Nashville's number one industry historically for the last 50 years has been healthcare, specifically for-profit, large-scale healthcare services companies. So we're talking the biggest healthcare services companies in the country that are for-profit are headquartered here in uh, in Nashville. So um, all those things sort of do a nice little dance around each other and have a lot to do with how I have landed in the professional seat I'm in today. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So what's the thesis of the fund? So the, the thesis of the fund is that there's a couple of key key things. One, at the moment, we only focus on healthcare in the United States. Once you start to get outside of the United States, the healthcare systems work di- very differently. You know, in the US, we have a pretty complex and, and unique healthcare system vis-a-vis the rest of the world. You know, Netherlands actually has a somewhat similar system, but theirs is much higher functioning than ours. We're a much more diverse country. We have a very different socioeconomic setup and uh, and we're a much bigger country, obviously, than the, the Netherlands is. So we have just a different scale of a challenge we're trying to solve here. So we focus on uh, the healthcare system in the United States, and we basically believe that it's a uh, it costs too much. It ultimately costs the country. It's it's uh, it's about 18% of GDP, US GDP, and growing. Expected to be over 20%, you know, over the course of the next decade. So that's a that's a big slug of our country's economy, and it doesn't really deliver great outcomes. You know, people are still suffering, and then they're paying out of pocket a lot of money as well. Um, they're dedicating a lot of their personal capital, their personal income that could be going to education, could be going to wealth generation for their families is going to cover healthcare costs. So there's a whole cost element of healthcare that really has to be addressed. There's advancing the actual care provision. So some of that is science, some of that is workflow, some of that is technologies that help providers, whether they be doctors, nurse practitioners, et cetera, to actually deliver care at a better way. And some of it is just the fact that only recently, you know, you talked about the fact that we we met in, in 2011. We met in sort of the post iPhone world, right? And it's been a very different world since the iPhone came into the into the world. But it still is only 15 years, right? I mean, it's it's not that old. And so we now have the iPhone. We have Android phones. We have all these wearables. I'm wearing an Aura ring right now, right? So we now have all this new rich data that, if properly funneled into clinical sources, can really improve the ability for patients and providers to communicate, diagnose things faster, come up with solutions faster, empower patients to make better decisions that will help them to prevent getting into some of the really bad situations that we're in. Because so many of the things that cost a lot of money in healthcare, unfortunately, are the result of chronic diseases, not necessarily things that people were born with or things like that, but things that, you know, unfortunately are the result of 
behaviors that may be cultural, that may be just based on some socioeconomic things, and maybe there are things we can do in that community to sort of change those outcomes. So it's a very complex space. There's a whole policy aspect to it. There's a whole demographic aspect to it. And so lots of opportunity to make things better, lots of opportunities to improve things. And uh, we kind of play across the whole thing. We haven't spent a lot of time in the, the life sciences space. We're starting to look and get smarter there before we actually start to make a lot of investments. Where we have made a lot of investments so far is uh, healthcare information technology, tech-enabled services, which means you know delivering care, but using technology to do it in a better, faster, more efficient way, higher quality way. Digital health, which is anything that empowers patients to take more control over their own health and wellness. And then to a degree, we've done some diagnostic devices and some also some consumer health and wellness things, things you might you know buy off the shelf at a, at a grocery store or at a drugstore. This is an early stage fund. You guys are writing, uh, these are seed funds. Is, what kind of stage are you guys at? Yeah, yeah, great question. Uh, so we play pre-seed through Series A. So across our different fund families, and we've got three, we write checks from 150K to about 3 million. That's kind of our, our check size. It's pretty broad. We're very prolific investors. So our pre-seed fund is called Jumpstart Foundry. This year, it will invest in 34 companies. And it, it's been alive the longest. This is its seventh year. So it's got well over 100 companies that it's invested in. Jumpstart Capital is our sort of senior most fund. It's our, our seed series A fund that takes advantage of all that deal flow that comes from Foundry, but also is, is just you know, out there in the market, making the, the most significant investments that we make as a fund platform. And then I started a new fund around last year, this time called Jumpstart Nova. And it is a seed and series A fund investing in innovative healthcare companies led by black founders. So this is our first year operating. I'm, I'm both in the process of standing the fund up, but I am starting to make investments, just brought on a partner to help me, you know, manage the fund. And so, you know, we're really excited about, about this new fund. Yeah, that's great. Well, kudos. I just, from being in tech, you know, 10 plus years, I, I know how hard it is as an early fund manager to get going. So whole podcast discussion and more just on that. So yeah. big ups. <laughs> well, maybe pressing rewind. So you studied University of Virginia and in New York City before that. Where'd you grow up, Marcus? I grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in East Flatbush, Brooklyn. And I grew up right next to a high school called Tilden High School that was affectionately known as Kilden High School. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, yeah. It eventually went into receivership. It had to be shut down because it was the most uh, violent school in the city um, at one point. And uh, literally, I mean, I could throw a stone from my front door to the steps of the school. So I, I did not go to that school. My parents weren't having any of that, you know. The house we had was a great house. The street we lived on was a great street. It was such a weird thing. You know, we had all these families and they really took good care of their property. But then there was this school there and it just was like not well managed. And, and uh, it probably made me, you know, formed a lot of thoughts in my head around education that have stuck with me throughout my life. But grew up in East Flatbush, went to public school up until uh, sixth grade. Then I was sort of zoned to go to schools right around the corner. And my parents weren't having that. So they, uh, they paid full price for me to go to a private school in uh, Diker Heights in Brooklyn called Poly Prep. I went there from seventh grade through 12th grade and graduated and then went to the University of Virginia for architecture. And then that was probably where I, I ran into the first big challenge in my life. You know, I was a fairly sheltered kid. My parents sort of always had me in some things. So when I say sheltered, it didn't mean like I didn't have experiences or I wasn't exposed, but I was never... 
I was never really left to my own devices. My life was very, very scheduled. So if I wasn't at school, I was playing some sport. If I wasn't doing that, I was in some, I was in Jack and Jill or some kind of after school activity or whatever. I was like always doing something. So when I got to college, it was like the first time where I was totally in control of my time and I did not have that skill at all. And so just the, the challenge of managing my own life, you know, it didn't go well. And I ended up lasting, you know, two years and, and sort of crashed out in year three. I had to go back home, so, you know, did a couple of classes at, at City University of New York, but ultimately never finished college and, uh, you know, just decided, okay, I'm, I don't know if I'm not mature enough. I mean, I think late, now in life, I've realized I have a certain learning style and uh, college is not really <laughs> well designed for my particular learning style. But, you know, back then, I didn't know that. I just knew I failed out, right? And so I ended up moving from New York to Atlanta, and that was where the rest of my life kind of really began. So that makes sense. You seem to be somebody that's a doer practitioner versus somebody that's academic. Maybe that's a good segue. I'm, I'm really, you know, was curious how you got into tech and looking at your background. Probably the better question is how do how do you get into coding? So I didn't live in Atlanta very long, but I lived there long enough to find who would be my first wife and start a family. And uh, we had one kid, one on the way, and then decided that we needed to be around some form of community and didn't really have a strong one in Atlanta. She went to high school here in Nashville. And so we, uh, on a whim, just kind of moved here and started spending a lot of time with her best friend. I was waiting tables to take care of the family. We were living in an efficiency hotel room. And, you know, I sort of looked at myself and said, okay, I now have a family waiting tables is, and, and there's nothing wrong with the profession of waiting tables, but this is not going to be a sustainable path for taking care of this family. If I was single, no problem, but three other lives depending on me, probably not so much. And so I remembered that when I was younger, my uncle was a programmer at IBM and he bought me an IBM PC junior, I guess it was like 1983 or 84. And, uh, you know, back then all the computers didn't do anything unless you program them. Like, you know, they had a bunch of floppy disks. Maybe you could play like Oregon Trail or something. But for the most part, you had to go in there, you had to learn basic and you had to program things. And so I learned a very, very, very primitive form of programming. But, you know, when you learn things when you're young, it kind of sticks with you like the, you know, there's some muscle memory there. And so it, this was the year 2000. And so, you know, obviously we had the Y2K stuff, but we also had the dot-com boom happening in the year 2000. And watching TV and seeing kids riding around in skateboards you know, making six figures. And I'm like, okay, if they can do that, then I can figure out how to do this. And, you know, the word had kind of gotten out. It was, it was part of the lore that you didn't need to have a degree to, to code. Right. And so I was like, got it loophole. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so that's my ticket. Yeah. That's my ticket. So I had a gateway computer, a PC computer, and um, I went to Borders bookstore back when we had bookstores <laughs> and, and I, I bought books, you know, I would wait tables. I take the money that, that I didn't have to spend on the hotel or food and I buy books and I take them home and I just do the exercise in the, in the books on my PC. And I did that for six months. Um, and eventually got good enough to get an entry-level job, you know, coding JavaScript. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. Pre-general assembly, right? And all these sort of coding schools. like It's so crazy, right? I mean, pre-general assembly, pre-code academy, pre-con academy. I mean, you know, pre-YouTube, right? Yeah. I mean, none of that stuff. There was no broadband. It was like, literally, you got a book. The book came with a CD-ROM. You'd put the CD-ROM in, you'd double-click stuff. And like, you know, it was very, very rudimentary. So 
it wasn't that you couldn't learn how to code. Obviously, there were books, right, in, in books in the bookstore with the sole purpose of teaching people who wanted to learn how to code how to code. But it was not nearly as accessible or pushed on us in the way that it is today. Yeah, I think that really speaks to uh, your grit and tenacity, which I probably a great segue to your what you're doing now. I'm curious, like, what are your favorite kind of investors to fund and how do you screen for founders? Do you have a framework and is sort of that, I mean, I think what we're talking about with your coding ability is sort of this grit and tenacity, which seems to be critical for any early stage founder, but is there, you know, what's important to you when you're analyzing a founder and a deal? Well, you know, Kurt, we've both been around the block a couple of times and, uh, you know, if you've survived being around the block a couple of times, you also have some scars and you've been burned in a couple of bad partnerships, right? Um, of course. And yeah, exactly. And yeah. And so, you know, I think there is this, and it's similar to an immune system, right? Where it's like the first time you encounter a virus, your body doesn't know what the heck it is. And it's like, ah, I'm getting knocked over by this thing. But then once it's seen it, it's like, okay, now I know what this thing is. And next time it comes, I'll be ready for it it's sort of the same thing with people and personalities, right? And entering into partnerships, I feel like it's very difficult to fake with some kind of rubric or some type of algorithm, having a solid built up immune system for, you know, for jerks, (laughs) you know, I got a lot of scars, I screwed up a bunch of times in terms of who I selected to be a partner with, and I have, have at times not been the best partner, right? And those and when I've done that, that's hurt me. You know, and so like I know from that perspective and uh, and so a lot of it, you know, when you're investing as a investor, you're investing across a portfolio. And part of that is you don't want to invest in exactly the same space or exactly the same kind of company or exactly the same kind of business model. You're trying to diversify. But some of it is also you're diversifying across different personalities as well. Like, I mean, I'm not trying to have you know, 20 companies where all the founders are carbon copies of each other, right? I mean, I'm looking for authenticity and people who are certainly have the grit and tenacity and resilience, but also will listen, right? You know, and will take input from other people. But ultimately, I want people who are uniquely qualified to solve the problem they're going after. That's what I want. And I feel like if you try to over-engineer that selection process, that can result in adverse selection. You know, you can end up rejecting a bunch of great people because of some immaterial thing. And I'm very sensitive to that because, you know, I'm someone without a college degree, right? You know what I mean? And so I think about all the filters that even today in 2021 with all the things that I've accomplished, like I still can't quite pass through because of, you know, uh, not having a college degree. And you think about in society, what's worse than that? Well, people have got run afoul of the law, you know, they've learned, you know, they've probably paid their debt to society, but because they've got this thing, we've got all, all these algorithms to sort of say, ah, because of this, they're sort of ruled out for this whole group of things. And there's probably some adverse selection going on there, right? So I try to keep an open mind. I try not to over-engineer and I try to just allocate the time to evaluate. Like once I get a good feeling about something, to really allocate the time to really dig in and try to work through it and make sure that we can work together, that I can be a value add to the founder. I think that's a lot of it. It's not just about, hey, is this a good place for me to park my money? It's also can we help, you know, the way that we're set up and the things that we know and the networks that we have and the experience that we have, can we help? Because if we can't help, let's get out of their way and let them find the right investor who can help. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's fair. And especially in this world, you know, post uh, 
you know, great financial crisis with all the quantitative easing and just all this debt that's getting printed, you know, money seems to be more and more a commodity and you have interest rates at the zero bound. And one of the things we're doing at Hunt Club is pioneering what we're calling venture enablement and helping VCs to be able to, you know, be able to better deliver on the promise that they could be a value-add investor. Because by and large, to get over the hurdle of being an investor, like you have to have a great network and you have to be smart and you have to know how to get things done. The problem becomes how do you, you know, manage your time when everybody's coming at you and be able to quickly, you know, play traffic cop and make the right referrals and all that sort of thing. And, and you know, it's a challenge. Yeah. And time is never on your side. So it's like when you get the gut feeling that something needs to be done, you can't procrastinate about it. You have to get to doing it. You really do. And whether that be building out a capability to better support your portfolio through partnership or uh, there's this thing that the founder said that just didn't jive with me. And it's not that they're trying to misguide me in some way, shape or form. You know, they just have a million things that they're, that they're and they're, they're worried about. You know, I remember when I used to be a founder and I had investors and how I would prepare to talk to them. You know, there is a weird dynamic there, right, between the two. And it's my job to to try to break through that and as often as possible, keep our conversation on the level, you know, so they will be honest and they will be real with me so that we can make progress together. Yeah, I love that. At Hunk Club, we have a value we figure it out together. And it's it sort of gets into this whole idea of being co-committed to people versus codependent where there's sort of like, you know, whether, I mean, this, this is uh, really important to be able to, I like how you said it, be on the level to really try to kind of see like what's really going on and like, what are you trying to get done? You know, here's what's important to me. Like, you know, can we get alignment here? Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, like let's, and also like, I expect in most cases, not all, but in most cases, I see things that they don't see. Right. And that's not a knock on them. As a function of uh, probably just, you know, a few years on them and you've been and seen so many different. A few years on them. I'm not in it. Right. Yeah. So like I have the benefit of looking from above, <laughs> not being in the thing, you know, trying to run every day. And so I kind of owe it to them to make sure, hey, let's regularly check in and also just set the expectation with them that, hey, yeah, look, I'm going to bring it to you and I'm going to like. I'm going to lean into conflict with you, but I'm going to do it so regularly that you'll know, oh, this is not a scary thing. You know, it doesn't change anything. I still am 100% in your corner, but I'm going to lean into the conflict regularly, you know, because that's where the progress lives. I, I want to get into the discussion about Nashville. I lived there back in the day for a bit, and it's such a great town, and I want to talk about that. But I do want to double click into healthcare a bit. You mentioned what a big percentage of GDP it is. And fundamentally, tech is deflationary. But why are we seeing such inflation in healthcare? Is it just because it's just so bloated and we're living longer? Like what talk to us about why there is such a problem with with healthcare these days. And and it feels to me like there seems to be fundamentally a misalignment in incentives. Like the healthcare system is sort of incentivized to keep people sick, right? Is that fair to say? Yes. That is fair to say. I, I think even leaders in the healthcare industry will, will tell you that, but it's a very difficult thing to unwind. So some of these things, and this should be sort of a bit of a cautionary tale about, you know, measure twice, cut once, right? You know, the healthcare system that we have today 
is really a result of Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson, which is, we all know, was sort of a transitional presidency, enhancing the Social Security Act with Medicare and adding on to the New Deal and setting up a business model that uh, was cost plus, meaning whatever the service costs, the government's going to pay that cost plus 20%. It's back in 1966, I think, 1966, 1967. And literally, that's still the system we have today. Now, is it cost plus? No, they've started to like set prices for things. And, you know, they've had to fix it over time. But it didn't, doesn't matter. It was all set around the service, right? It was all set around the service. Well, services are needed for sick people. You don't need services as much for healthy people. So prevention is not optimal for the healthcare enterprise that is trying to generate revenue for services. And that's the fundamental problem, right? The, then there are other problems that sort of layer on top of that. And one of those problems is that, is that there's an intermediary between the customer and the provider, which is the health insurance companies, right? This entire concept of managed care that disconnects us from the services we're getting. So we have no price sensitivity to it. So the prices can kind of run all over the place, right? But we are feeling it though with our insurance premiums inflating. Yeah, but that's only a small percentage of the actual cost of healthcare, right? And it gets aggregated to all of us in such a way where it's just sort of built in like this utility right? Under the model of insurance. So we all understand and we appreciate insurance. And, uh, you know, we feel it. It's not that it's inelastic, but it doesn't actually map to the full breadth of the services we as each individual receive, right? So it's kind of like we all go into a restaurant, okay? And you eat one burger, I eat 10 burgers, but we walk out with a bill for one burger each for five, five each. each. Yeah. Yeah. One burger each or five each. Right. You know, like whatever. Right. You know what I mean? It's like the cost gets split across this entire system. And so as it's creeping up, it's a little bit of the boiling frog thing. Right. It's like, yeah, it doesn't know that it's boiling. It just boils itself to death. Yeah. We don't really know. We don't really know. So it's a dysfunctional economy in that way. There's no other economy in America that functions that way. Right. Everything else, we as consumers are directly connected to the cost. And so when it goes up, like we've, we personally feel it in real time, not annually. You know, gas prices go up like that. Premiums don't go up like that. They go up on an annual basis. They're sort of locked in on a year to year basis. That's another sign that like we're disconnected from the truth of the economy. Yeah. And then the sort of demographic thrust of the boomers is sort of a lagging thing and that drives things up and it's just a slow like grind. That's right. That's right. So it's a very, very dysfunctional system, which is why, you know, we at Jumpstart Health focus on U.S. healthcare, because like you really have to know it, I think, to be able to understand the problems, to be able to wisely invest in solutions. So you, you have to really, really understand it. So, yeah, I mean, look, that's and I haven't really scratched the surface of all of the things. I'm just giving you some of the foundational reasons why it's so dysfunctional and, and the cost has been able to run out of control so much. By the way, I said it was the only system, but there is another economy that's somewhat similar. It's not exactly the same, but higher education is somewhat similar um, with the student loans, right? You know, and the craziness around that. 
it ultimately does touch us, but it's this like automatic financing mechanism that just allows us to sign up for it all. We do end up having to pay the piper ultimately differently than healthcare, but there's a reason why healthcare and higher education are the two fastest rising costs from a service perspective in, in the country. You know, those are the two things where the inflation has just been out of control. Yeah. You could probably also say to a certain degree, some of the finance assets that the wealth effect is trying to create isn't. And if, if you're not, you know, in the market, you're getting left behind. That's maybe not quite as, as good of an analog to what you're describing, but that was a much better bit of background than I was expecting. I didn't know that about the, uh, the New Deal and, and Medic- Medicare. Yeah, if you go look at the founding of, of Medicare, that's a big one. And then and then Nixon sort of stepped it up. He wrote in some rule around around kidney procedures that really sort of accelerated it. And you can kind of see the cost ramping up through these policy mechanisms that come into play. So, yeah. Well, maybe turning the page, let, let's talk about Nashville. Like I said, I lived there back in the day. I mean, I was in Hillsborough Village in West End. Uh, I was... I was there in 01. So amazing town. I've known from the time I've spent there, the health is, health sector is big. Is there any insight in the history of why that is? Like, Why so many health companies? Why it's such a big health town? Yeah. So Thomas First Sr., Thomas First Jr., and Jack Massey started Healthcare Corporation of America right on the heels of Medicare passing. <laughs> so these guys were smart. They were in town. The Frists were the healthcare guys. They were the doctors. Actually, Jack Massey was a pharmacist, but he was also a master business guy. He also didn't create, but he scaled KFC. And he also actually created. So I think he holds the record for the most public companies for any entrepreneur in in the country. Yeah. Yeah. I think he did like four of them. Yeah. And he saw that change. And I think he was on the, the, the board of either Meharry or Baptist. I, I, I get confused as to which one, but he understood what it was going to mean. And he was like, listen, if we can kind of create a back end, sort of round up these doctors, operationalize this whole thing. The doctors don't want to run businesses. They want to take care of people. If we can sort of scale this, because they really weren't hospitals like that, you know, before then. So they sort of invented the idea of corporate hospitals, you know, before they were all sort of religious institutions. So they created this corporate hospital concept and uh, in 1968, and that's the beginning of Nashville's healthcare family tree that's now over 600, probably 700 at this point, different companies that have all sort of spun off of this one company, Wow, all spun off of HCA, venture funds and, you know, ambulatory surgical centers and- HCA, it's like the sun and all these little planets are orbiting in this ecosystem just gets kind of this reflexive loop. That's right. Yeah. Cool. I didn't know that. Look at us. And we're learning all kinds of stuff today with Marcus here on the Curdy D show. Well, you know, let's double click into that. The Nashville tech market seems to really have, you know, evolved over the last 10 plus years. And you've been a real big part of that. And what are some of the organizations and who are some of the people that really know in Nashville? We'll put this on the show notes for people that want to click in. Great. Yeah. So I'll kind of talk about two phases because I think there's the phase that I was very involved in and then there's what's happening now, which is a very, very different thing. So I would say from, from, let's just call it 2008, 2009 to maybe 2017, there was this, you know, energy and movement that was very homegrown. You know, the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, 
Launch Tennessee, which is a statewide organization. It's a sort of quasi public and private nonprofit organization that's all about, you know, supporting entrepreneurship across the state of Tennessee, but obviously it's headquartered in Nashville. So it's got a, a pretty strong presence here. You know, the venture fund ecosystem that was here, Jumpstart, that we started, you know, we started the first accelerator in the state. So, you know, we were a big part of you know, you know, launching that kind of stuff. What year did, was that Jumpstart launched? 2009, we started. 2009, we were kind of like a shark tank. 2010, we were an accelerator and we did that till 2014. Great time. Great time. Yeah. So when I met you in 2011, I was doing Moon Toast, but I was moonlighting doing Jumpstart, which actually became, you know, what is my career now and has been for the last seven years. So yeah, you know, I think that there was that whole thing. But I think if you look across the country, you'll see in other cities, they had very similar things, that kind of infrastructure, that homegrown infrastructure, you know, a couple of venture funds, a local incubator, maybe an accelerator got popped off. They started, they were just trying to figure things out. You know, over the last four years, things have happened in a much different pace. Um, and it's largely been a forcing factor of, that was even accelerated more by COVID, but people are moving away from the coast. You know, they're moving into other places. They're moving into Austin, Texas. They're moving into Denver. They're moving to Miami and they're moving to Nashville. We're getting a ridiculous number of people from LA, a lot of people oh, from Chicago. Red hot property market. It's yeah. a ridiculous market. So we have all of that happening. And then we have had major, major company relocations coming here. You know, probably the most notable ones would be Alliance Bernstein, big finance company from New York, moved their headquarters to Nashville. Amazon set up what, what originally was supposed to be a 5,000. Now it feels like it's going to be a 10,000 person center of, of excellence around distribution in Nashville. And then Oracle announced their opening HQ2 here. So, you know, and that's just been in the last three years. So we have this whole like big company, big tech thing happening that hasn't even fully played out yet. Like they're still building their buildings, <laughs> you know, they're still digging up the dirt. So that's really changing things. And yeah, our population is growing at an unbelievable pace. You know, growth brings challenges. There's a lot of good that comes with it, but it also brings challenges. And the city, I think, is working hard to try to navigate and get out in front of a lot of these challenges. But it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting time to be here on the ground while all this change is happening. So I have a bunch of West Coast friends that have moved to Nashville since COVID. So they'll be listening, hopefully, to this. And if they were to want to get connected quickly into the local Nashville tech scene, who are some of the folks that they should reach out to? So, you know, this is a tough question because people like your friends are moving here so quickly that it feels to me like there's two Nashvilles living in Nashville right now. It's like there's a critical mass of new people, right? And yeah. so they almost can like set up their own ecosystem amongst themselves yeah yeah similar to what's happening in miami yeah right and, and probably very similar to what happened in la in 08 through 2011 what happened in nashville 08 2011 like that same kind of collegiate thing it's sort of a new wave it's a new wave honestly it, we have a new wave right now and so it's like you know and then people like me who you know i can't even really call myself a pioneer because there was a group of people laying the foundation I would say probably, you know, five years before I got there, you know, probably in like 95, I'm talking about really early web 
you know, they were building like networking companies and stuff like that, some website companies and stuff like that. When I got there, those companies were already up and running. Those were the real pioneers. You know, I, I got to stand on their shoulders and kind of go from there. But people like me, you know, I'm moving to, to a different phase of my life. I'm a VC. I'm investing around the country. I'm looking at corporate boards. I'm like, my kids are out of the house. So I'm not trying to be a big tech ecosystem guy anymore. That's not even what I'm going for right now. You know, I'm trying to enjoy a different part of my life right now. So, you know, look, I mean, I can say these same organizations, but I think the truth is my gut tells me a whole new thing is about to happen here. You know, yeah. are there any hashtags that you're seeing emerge that people could click into? Man, are there any hashtags I'm seeing? I might be out of the loop. Yeah, no worries. If not, putting you on the... Curdy? <laughs> like, seriously, dude, I might... Well, you know, maybe that's how you know you made it. Like, you didn't have to pay attention <laughs> in your own backyard. It's, <laughs> it's so weird. It's like, man, it is everything I can do to keep up with what I've got going on. You know what I mean? Yeah, fair. Well, that was to our... Uh, back to this venture enablement stuff that we're getting into at Hunter Club. Like, you're just... You know, you guys are just getting pounded. So, yeah, it's intense, man. I mean, to do this well, I think people think, you know, venture is like this easy thing. And on one hand, it is because you're not punching a clock, right? So, you know, you make your own schedule. So, from that perspective, it is a lifestyle business. And, I, you know, since I've worked other kinds of businesses where you do have to punch a clock, I understand that. I don't ignore that, but it's hard work in a different way. You know what I mean? It's really hard work in a different way. And uh, and at the scale of the number of funds that are coming up, you know, I'm not the only person raising a new fund, right? I mean, there's new funds popping up everywhere. Yeah, and it's, it's, then that velocity will probably only increase. It's going to increase. That's right. As it should. As it should. We should have a competitive market, right? You know, there shouldn't be just a few players in the space, right? Well, I think shifting gears, I think just a great segue, actually. The core theme of the Curdy D show is humanizing success. And as I've shared, Marcus, with you, some of the issues I've had that I'm increasingly candid from some of the challenges with my hearing and, you know, other stuff that I've dealt with. You mentioned, uh, you know, founder breakup. I had a really painful founder, co-founder uh, blow up in 2012 that was really, really painful. And, um, you know, that actually opened up a whole new chapter for my life that ended up connecting me to my wife and a whole bunch of new stuff. And it's like, so I, I really do believe the bigger the breakdown, the bigger the possibility for a breakthrough. And having said that, what are some of the challenges personally or professionally that you've had to face that you're comfortable sharing and how'd you get over the hurdles and what gifts did the pain give you? Yeah. So I think there are, you know, there are three main ones. I can bucket them all together. So one was business failure. I have had business failures. Some of them involved founder breakup, but some of them were just business failures. And it was just, they're just painful. They're just difficult. They're painful. The second is divorce. Incredibly painful, especially if you've got children. Uh, it's an incredibly painful thing. And then the third was substance abuse, you know, specifically drinking. And so, and then subsequently getting sober, right? Yeah. You know, and that's almost been coming up on three years. In November, it'll be three years. So, you know, how many years? It'll be three years in uh, November. Congrats. Thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So those are our three they're pretty heavy things, you know, but I can tell you, like, having been through those heavy things, like, I've never been better in my entire life right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? And quite frankly, I've never been better in those three areas. Like, I've never been better in business. I've never been better in relationship, you know, remarried and 
incredibly happy just like in this very sort of calm everything is pretty freaking easy <laughs> way you know and then you know being sober is awesome like i sleep well i think better i perform better you know uh, i've i've rediscovered my inner athlete you know like doing competitive jujitsu just much happier and also like i've i've rediscovered that i know how to be social without alcohol you know i'd lost that i, I, I literally lost a part of myself i didn't realize that you know but you know i just got so dependent on it that like if i was going to go and to go out somewhere like up had to had to so i like rediscovered this whole part of myself i think i rediscovered many parts of myself actually and yeah i mean look i mean i think these are all things that you go through their life is about learning and i don't think you can avoid tragedy in life it's just not possible but if you can come out on the other side you do have to have some level of resilience and some commitment to seeing your life through despite the hardship you're currently experiencing and knowing that it's going to you know, the pain will, will subside eventually. Yeah. Well, not to make kind of light of it or be sort of too anecdotal, but I do believe that like without the pain, you don't have the pleasure, right? You can't really have one without the other and, and, and everything's hard. That's right. That's right. You know, it's hard to build wealth. It's hard to be poor. It's hard to be healthy. It's hard to be sick. Like, so you have to choose wisely or we get to choose wisely. That's right. And, you know, you go through these things and you do, you learn, you learn, you do, you become better at life. And I think it gets easier to choose wisely when you're smarter and better at life. It's like, it's like, you know, being young, yeah, you've got all, you know, you've had your health and your excitement and your hormones, but you're kind of dumb, you know, you don't know what you don't know. You think you know more than, you know, you know, you know, and there's a gift if you can survive these things and attain wisdom through really, really hard circumstances. There's a gift. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you sharing and being honest. The episode one of the Curdy D show, I kicked it off with my dad who I helped get sober when I was in my early twenties. And, and that was a real miracle. And, you know, when I asked him how he figured it out, and he just essentially said that he realized that his best thinking at the time got him into the problem in the situation he was. And he needed to, you know, essentially he got really humbled and he had to start think about like turn his life over as sort of cliche as that sounds and work with people that was able to help him to show up another path. And uh, he's really active in 12 steps now and is a real beacon in the community. And you know, it is a miracle. And I do believe that oftentimes it is our pain that gives us our power. And, you know, I think it's cool full circle too for you that you're in the health sector. You have that kind of full experience about kind of even your own biological and psychological trip that it is to be on this earth. And you're able to sort of kind of participate in that way. I love it. I love working in health and, you know, we're constantly talking about things like behavioral health now and, and, uh, you know, but obviously also like chronic disease. And so I think about the food that I eat and, and these things are all interconnected too. I mean, in reality, there is no separation just because we come up with different terms so that we can like communicate from a language perspective. The reality is the human body is an integrated piece of wonderful organic technology. And it doesn't really differentiate between the food you put in your your body and like how you're feeling on any given day. Like it's all working together. You know what I mean? And so I love staying in this space because part of the benefit is I'm learning all the time. I'm always learning. And I try to apply that to myself as much as possible. My experience is that the body is so smart in one way, similar to the mind where 
it'll do whatever it can to get regulated and sort of feel grounded, whether that's good for you or bad for you. That's right. right? That's right. And how do you stay grounded in this brave new world and, and being a, you know, sort of playing at the level you're doing? My practices, you know, trying to get seven hours of sleep, trying to drink 80 ounces of, you know, water a day, trying to get some exercise, trying to meditate and, and trying to do those things every day. Yeah. So just table stakes with a daily practice of just the basics. Yeah. That's right. Trying to write a gratitude statement every day. Just trying to have like a basic set of practices that are daily practices. And I don't get them done every day, by the way, but I can always return to them. That's the thing I learned. Like, I don't have to be perfect. I can, you know, if I have a week where for whatever reason, I just got off and I'm like, ugh, whatever. I can always come back. You know, I can always come back and I can reground and recenter and then kind of, and then sometimes it's really nice. I've taken a week off and then, I, oh, I remember like, you know, sometimes you get bored with it. You're like, ah, oh, you know, what's this really doing for me? You take a week off and you remember, oh, now I know what it's doing for me. Let me get back to it. You know what I mean? So it's the practices for me. Yeah, I love that. Well, I know we're at time kind of wrapping up. One of the fun questions I like to close out with is, you know, seemed to from little research I did online that you love music. If you could have any band or any artist play any venue, it could be in the future, now or the past, who would it be and where would it be playing? Yeah, I, I think it would be a band I never got to see. So I think it would probably be Bob Marley. So I think that would be like a religious experience to actually see Bob Marley play live. Oh, I love that. I think I'm right there with you. Where would it be? Now, the where is the hard part. The where is the hard part. You know, but it, it might be like in the place that was most comfortable for him so he could be most oh, I love that. alive, right? Yeah. So, so where would that be? And you know, probably Jamaica, right? You know? Yeah, I just got the chills. I just sort of saw myself like just hanging out with him, listening to him, record some songs. Like that would be incredible, right? Like yeah. Bob, you know, it's just, Bob didn't just make music, right? You know, he made magic and it's like, you know, and, and, and I've never got to see him, but I felt the, you know, the incredible vibe from it. So yeah, it would be Bob, I think. Yeah, I love that. Love that. Rest in peace, Bob Marley. Last question. How can our audience be helpful to you? And if they wanted to get in touch online or otherwise, how can they find you, Marcus? You can find me, Marcus Whitney. Like, literally, I've taken great care to go grab that name. <laughs> Every social network, there's a little bit of a benefit to have gotten in this game when I did. So I've kind of staked out that real estate. So pretty much every social network, but you know, and I, I sort of take all channels. So wherever you are, you just reach out to me at, at Marcus Whitney. And you got the MarcusWhitney.com. Yep. That too. Including the .com. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. The site looks really great, by the way. Thanks, man. Yeah. And then anything um, folks can be helpful. Deal flow. You gave a pretty good kind of overview of what you're looking for. Anything beyond that? Not really, man. Just, um, you know, just kind of focusing in on, on themselves, man. I mean, I think this is such a hard time. And I just want people to take care of themselves. That's how you can help me. We all got to, we all got to get through this thing so we can get back to having a good time. You know what I mean? Oh, I love that. Well said. Well, I know we went over a little over time, Marcus. So appreciate you and what you're doing. And thank you so much again. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Thanks again to my friend, Marcus Whitney, partner at Jumpstart Health Investors and Jumpstart Nova for sharing his awesome story. Feel free to check out the show notes. And please tune in next week for my conversation with my friend, Jonathan Schieber, editor at the Footprint Coalition, a coalition of investors, donors, and storytellers committed to scaling technologies to restore our planet, founded by the inspired protagonist, Robert Downey Jr. 
at D on Twitter and Instagram. Also, Kurt Deridix on LinkedIn. Then that's all for today, friends. Until next time, Curdy D loves you. Thanks for listening. To review the show notes for this episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, and any links mentioned, visit curdyd.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to be notified when new episodes go live. Stay tuned for more unique perspectives shaping the world on The Curdy D Show.